As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in a bank? And in my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Shalom. Salam. Or us Asians, we do like this. I don't know, why do we do that in pictures all the time? I don't know. Stop it. We're in Luke 19. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Uh, We cherish it so much, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us what you want us to learn this morning. And not necessarily what's coming out of my mouth, Lord, as you minister to people's spirits and their hearts and their minds. Uh, May you speak directly to them. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are new to regeneration, the way we kind of study the Bible is just kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we happen to be at Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27 this morning, and so if any of you feels like, oh, this message was just for me and he's picking on me, yes, and so that's how we do it here, we pick on you, and so here we are, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, here's the first pick on you question, what are you doing with your life? How are we going about living a meaningful life? What are we living for? How are we living? Is the life you and I living, is it significant? And I'm not talking about being busy. I'm not talking about your career. I'm not talking about your productivity or anything like that. I'm talking about a meaningful significance. Now, King Solomon, one of the wisest men to ever live, one of the wealthiest men to ever live, 
He had every indulgence available to man. And this is what he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now in light of those two verses, what are you doing with your life? Where is your life heading? And maybe it's like many other people in this world. You, you go to work so that you can eat, so that you can provide a shelter for yourself, so you can buy bigger, better, nicer things. Do things, go on vacation so that you can go to sleep and wake up and do it all over again. And that's what you do day after day. You work until you get a day off. And then after a couple of days off, you're back at it all over again. Week after week, month after month, year after year, we live our life. But is it meaningful or is it meaningless? Is it all vanity? So it's been four weeks since I last preached. Some of you are praising the Lord and some of you are nice to me. And so let's get some context established from the beginning of verse 11 before we move too far ahead. Starting in verse 11, as they heard these things. So what in the world are these things? What are these things that he's talking about? Well, you have to look back at several verses. You have to look back to verses 9 and 10 in the story of Zacchaeus. So let's take a look back there. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus' life moved from meaningless to meaningful. From being lost to being saved. I was in Jericho with the interns just two weeks ago. And we saw a sycamore tree. I can't tell you if it was the sycamore tree. They all say it's the traditional sycamore tree. Who knows? I think with our technology nowadays, they can like scatter some DNA off of it and say this was from a short man or something like that. But I wonder, whatever came of Zacchaeus? Because the Bible doesn't say. The Bible tells us that he changed. And it wasn't just some behavior modification change. This is a, a transformational change. And so as they heard these things, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Those things, as they heard that, he proceeded to tell a parable. Now by now we're familiar with parables. You know, studying the gospel of Luke for, I don't know what it is, three years now? Is that where we're at? And they've been challenging. These parables have been really challenging. And so you remember the parable of the soils back in Luke chapter 8. Let me just read that for you really quickly, just verses 4 through 8. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. Now if you're hearing that for the very first time, if you're one of the crowd hearing that for the very first time, you'd be wondering, what in the world is Jesus talking about? What's this soil talk? What's this seed talk? What's all this stuff? And so that's why the disciples had to ask him what the parable meant in verse 9. Because they didn't know either. 
See, the parables, they act as filters. Parables, it lets some people through and it keeps some people out. And verse 10 of that parable, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And the parable in Luke chapter 8, Jesus explained what it meant, starting in verse 11. But what about this one? The parable of the minas, or minas, tomato, tomato. You, I, I grew up with mina, and so... Mina, sorry if I'm not pronouncing it right. I think you're right though. I think it is Mina because anyway. We don't find an explanation from Jesus about this parable. So what do we have to do? Because it's not like Luke chapter 8 where Jesus tells us what that parable meant. What do we do with this one? Well, we have to look at the surrounding verses around this parable. We have to look at what happened before, what's happening during, and what happens after. So before this parable, we see the transformation of Zacchaeus. And then it continues on to verse 11. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Nothing new here. Since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and the time was drawing closer. We're in chapter 19 now. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verse 20, when the kingdom of God would come, and Jesus answered them with this, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. We're a Bible-believing church. We study the Old Testament. We know that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about a day when the Messiah would directly rule the world. Not just some sovereign, providential type thing, but a direct rule from God through Messiah. And the Old Testament points us to the coming rule and reign of Messiah. Now the disciples knew this as well. They've been hanging with Jesus for a few years now, and there was this anticipation of what Jesus was going to do as Messiah, but they really had no clue. The way they thought the Messiah was going to come turned out to be totally different from what they thought. Jesus told them in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But they didn't get it. He told them what was going to happen again in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And what does Luke chapter 18, verse 34 tell us? But they understood none. Of these things. They don't even get it after Jesus died and resurrected. You look to uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Just clueless. See how the disciples were stuck to their Jewish expectations, their religious expectations, their traditional expectations. They had no concept that God was doing things His way, not their way. And the mission was so much larger than what they thought. They were just thinking about Israel while God was thinking the world. All of humanity. Everyone. 
Back to verse 11 in chapter 19. As they heard these things, as they heard about the transformation of Zacchaeus, the evidence of the Word of God working, being sown into his heart, into the heart of a sinner, into someone far from God and being changed, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem. They're just about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. They're in Jericho right now. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, which was not true. It was not going to appear like they thought. It wasn't going to appear immediately. Some things have to happen before Christ's return. And we're still waiting for that, aren't we? So Jesus addressed this inaccurate expectation by telling them a parable. Now it's important to note why Jesus told this parable. It's not because it's a good story. He told this parable to them because their expectation of the kingdom of God was off. They were wrong. They thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, and that wasn't the case. The disciples were wrong in focusing on when these events were going to happen rather than looking at how they were going to live prior to His return. How were they going to live? And Jesus wasn't going to let them continue on with this wrong type of thinking. Right? The disciples, they were preoccupied with when. When are these things going to happen? And that's not all that different from people today. Right? People like to predict when Jesus is going to come back. They're engrossed with eschatology, right? the study of the end times. Christians and secular people alike just take a look at all the books and all the movies and all the media about the last days. People are just absorbed with this type of thinking. And rather than being preoccupied with when, what if we listen to Jesus' parable here and invested ourselves into how we live? How we live and what we do with the gospel now. Jesus Christ's return is going to happen. We know that. The Bible tells us that. The Bible also tells us that no one knows when that will happen except the Father. Even He Himself does not know. And I think God is much more concerned with how we live our life more so than guessing when He's going to come back. And so here's the parable. Verse 12, He said, Therefore, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now the people listening to Jesus' parable would be really familiar with this parable Jesus is telling because this is something that actually happened during the time when Jesus told this parable. Herod the Great had sons. Some of them he killed. Some of them he didn't. But he had sons. And one son, Archelaus. Archelaus had a palace in Jericho. And so... Where this story took place, Archelaus had a palace there. And so he had to make a journey to Rome to visit Caesar Augustus in order to receive the rulership of the kingdom left to him by his father, Herod the Great. And so Herod the Great's kingdom was divided after his death, and the territory left to Archelaus, his son, included Jericho and Jerusalem. But in order for him to receive the kingdom without any further complications, because it was given by Caesar to say, this is yours, and therefore it is law, he had to submit his claim to Caesar Augustus in Rome. So he had to leave Jericho and make that long journey to Rome. Now for us, without doing some research, verse 12 kind of loses this point of reference. 
while everyone hearing this in Jesus' day knew exactly what Jesus was kind of referring to because there's a similarity there, Archelaus took a journey to Rome to receive lands. He went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and he's going to return. They would all have this point of reference as to what this parable was relating to. Verse 13, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So notice this. All ten servants were given the equal amount of money. One mina each. All of them were the same. And the nobleman wanted them to engage in business while he was gone. And he wanted them to do something meaningful with what they were given until he came back. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. A little background about Archelaus. Before Archelaus left to Rome, there was this rebellion from the Jews, specifically from the Pharisees. So what did Archelaus do? Massacred 3,000 Pharisees. Killed them. And so in Rome, there was this opposition by the Jews who didn't want him to rule because they feared his cruelty because he just killed 3,000 of our friends. And so they were there in Rome to protest his rule on them. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now before we get any further, you'll notice that initially there were ten servants, and here we have the story of three servants. This is a parable, so don't get cut up on the math. Okay, Jesus is getting across a heavenly lesson, not a math lesson. So just to get that out there. Verses 16 and 17. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. So servant number one is praised. He's known to be faithful. And he was rewarded in proportion to what he did. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Servant number two doesn't get the same praise, doesn't get acknowledged for his faithfulness, but he is still rewarded in proportion to what he did. So still a pretty good deal. Verses 20 through 25. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Servant number three got worked. right? Not just in absence of praise, but he got told. He got told he was wicked. And what was given to him was taken. The other guys made out with something. This guy, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And why didn't he do anything with what he was given? Fear. We'll talk a little bit more about fear a little later. 
Verses 26 and 27. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What's up with this parable? Jesus is the heir of the world. He's the nobleman. He doesn't have immediate reign. His reign is coming, right? There's a not yet aspect to Christ's return. He has taken this long journey before he comes back to his kingdom to be crowned king. In fact, he had to leave the world 2,000 years ago, but he will return. And upon his return, there will be this public coronation. Until his return, Jesus has left us, his servants, to go about his business. And he's given each one of us the same mina, the same redemption, the same salvation through him. Our business is to meaningfully live out our faith and bring non-believers into faith in Jesus. The mina is the gospel. Our mina is the gospel. And those of us who have it, we are to use it for his business. We're all given the same amount. No one has more gospel than another person. We all have the same amount. Like each of these servants who were given one mina. Now we might all have different talents and gifts and skills and personalities, but we all have the same gospel. That Jesus died and He resurrected for the sins of people to give us new life. A life where we can have a relationship with a holy God and we are to engage in His business until He returns. Now back to verse 14. But His citizens hated Him and sent a delegation after Him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. As with Archelaus, there will be a rebellion against Jesus Christ. Huge difference is that Archelaus was this cruel ruler who killed 3,000 Pharisees right before he left because they had a rebellion. Jesus Christ, what did he do? He hung on a cross for you and I. Did he kill anybody? He suffered and he died and he was gracious in death. He was merciful in his death. Nonetheless, there will be a rebellion against Jesus Christ, even though He is righteous, even though He is just. And this parable is giving us an illustration of the rebellion the world has toward Jesus. And there are many in this world who don't want Jesus to reign over them, including people who attend church. And the reasons people have against Jesus reigning over them, they are vast and they are varied. But for whatever the reasons are, it boils down to this. The will. Your will. You just don't want Jesus to reign over you. They just don't want Jesus to reign over them. And Jesus issues this stern warning through this parable for rejecting Him in verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus? Aren't you like nice? What happened? This really seems really harsh, doesn't it? Yes. Because the decision to have Jesus reign over your life is a severe matter. This is a matter of life and death. 
rejection of the king means that you have no part in the kingdom. He's king. This is his reign. If you don't want to be a part of it, don't. If you don't want Jesus to reign as king over your life, you don't want to be in his kingdom. And for those who don't want to be in his kingdom, you are given a dignity not to be there. You're given dignity. You will not be forced to have him reign over you. He will not do that to you. You live with the consequences of your decisions, but you are given the dignity to exercise your will. You don't want to be a part? Don't. Now, don't worry, we're not going to go through every verse again. I'm just going to point out a few. The first one, verse 14, those in flat-out rebellion. And the next one I want to point out is in verse 22. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. See, the wicked servant is not the one with an outright rebellion and not wanting Jesus to reign over them. This is someone who wants Jesus' reign, but isn't doing anything to show that they are indeed a servant of Jesus Christ. Someone who knows what they are to do, but they just kind of keep their mina hidden in a handkerchief, which I think is synonymous with church. You just stay here. You just come here on Sunday. You're just hiding it here. You might as well blow your nose in this place, right? You're just here. And we are given the gospel to go about Jesus' business. Keep it all to ourselves and, and tell him about it, how you kept it here. Jesus, look, the gospel's here with me. And he'd be like, what? You're snot. And we are to put it to use. right? Invest it into others' lives so that they can likewise do the same. The gospel was not given to us to keep it to ourselves and think about, man, it's so great to belong to the kingdom. It's so awesome. I can't wait till he returns. Can you wait till he returns? I'll see you next Sunday. Now check out what this servant attempted to do in verse 21. He tried to put the blame on the nobleman. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now if this was so, if Christ is to blame for everything, why in the story would the nobleman give equal minus to each of his servants? Would Jesus give each one of us the same gospel to go about his business if he were that unjust? Wouldn't he just give it to those that he thought had the skills to pull off sharing the gospel? Yeah, you... Type A, choleric, whatever, go, you got it. And you passive one, ah, never mind. You shy one, never mind. But that's not the case. We're all given the same. It's not about talent, it's not about skills, it's not about gifts. This is about faithfulness. Faithfulness. Do you have the faith to go about His business regardless of what skills you do have or don't have? Do you have the faith to put forth effort to go about Jesus' business? And why didn't this servant go about his master's business? Fear. For I was afraid of you. See, fear caused him to freeze. Fear caused him to play it safe. Fear prevented him from taking risks. And so the servant failed to do what was instructed to him by the nobleman to engage in his business. He didn't risk what he had been given and therefore he failed. 
And to make matters worse, he didn't even get to keep what he saved. It was taken from him. See, when we avoid risks, we are actually taking the biggest risk of all. You're actually risking more by playing it safe, by being conservative. You can lose everything given to you. All of it. When you attempt to find meaning in meaningless things, in safety, in insignificant things, in passivity, in narrow-mindedness, in slothfulness, you risk losing everything. See, there's no failure in doing what Jesus instructed us to do. You won't be judged on your conversion ratio, right? You're not going to be judged on that. Conversion isn't up to us anyway. You will be evaluated for your faithfulness to the gospel. So don't be a wicked servant and keep the gospel to yourself, which I think too many of us do, quite honestly. Because you don't have to answer this by raising your hands. Answer it into your heart. When is the last time you shared the gospel with a non-believer? Really? When's the last time? And so you might be content right now, or maybe not. Maybe you're feeling a little uncomfortable. Like, oh, why did you ask me that? Some of you might be content, while others are putting their minds to use. But I don't think you'll be all that content when Jesus returns and he asks what you did with the gospel that he gave you. And if you didn't do anything with it, I don't think you're going to be that content then. Is possessing the gospel just about coming to church, attending a small group, giving tithes and offerings, worshiping, serving? Is that all it is? According to this parable, not sharing the gospel has you in a pretty bad situation. You are considered a wicked servant. So don't keep the gospel to yourself. Stop playing it safe. You are given a mina. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Now some of you may be thinking, that's not nice. You're taking the thing that this guy just has one of and you're giving it to the guy who has a ton of it? Why waste it? Not doing anything with it anyway. You're just sitting on it. So the one who does something with it gets it. Nothing's being done. So give it to someone who's going to do something with it. If we don't do anything with the little that we have, we'll lose it. You'll lose it. And the way we live now has bearing on our life everlasting. Each one of us will be rewarded based on what we've done faithfully in Jesus. We don't end up getting the same stuff. When you die and you go to heaven, some of you may be thinking, oh yeah, we're all going to have the same. No, you don't. You're like, show me in the Bible. I will. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11-15. through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest for the day, his return, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 
You just have fire insurance. That's it. Everything else burned. See, some will make it through the flames, but you will suffer loss. We don't end up with the same stuff. Some of us have things that will remain through the fire and they will be shown to be great good works that survived. Others, it will be burnt. Like you did nothing. So we end up with different rewards. And I think worse yet is the one who thinks that they are a believer when they're not a believer at all. And you don't even make it through the flames. And I'm not saying that we can earn our way into heaven through good works. No way am I saying that. We know it is by God's grace alone. But we don't get into heaven absent of good works either. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. And this is not by your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Rather than being a rebel, rather than being a wicked servant, how about, well done, good servant? Where there's evidence that we have indeed been good servants just like Zacchaeus who showed evidence of his converted life the good works we exhibit aren't proof of a salvation earned it is proof of a salvation given gifted to us as servants of Jesus our business is completely risk driven it's all about risk Our business is challenging and demanding and it takes faith. It is the most meaningful of responsibilities given to a servant of Jesus. And you know what? We are not done. You are not done until your dying breath. Our Master has not come home yet. So what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your mina? If you haven't done anything with the gospel that has been given to you, I remind you, the Master has not returned yet. He hasn't come back yet. You don't have to feel guilty or ashamed or in despair or beaten up if you haven't done anything with the gospel given to you. What it is time to do, it's time to change. It's time to use that mina. It's time to use that gospel. It's time for you to go for it. Because He hasn't come back yet. If he comes back later, you might be in kind of a weird situation. At least share it once. Go out there and do it once before the day's over. You know, move forward with what you know. And if anyone has hope, it's the follower of Jesus. Because he's the provider of hope. He has shared that hope with all of us. See, God's timetable for Jesus' return, it is set. We don't know when that is, but the time is set and it's not going to stop. It's set. And so there's an established time for Jesus Christ's return, and then it will be the end of world history. That's it. Books closed. What do you do with your mind? Until then, we as His servants are to go about His business, and as assuredly as Jesus Christ lived and died on the cross and resurrected, so will be His return. So may we be about His business and putting forth our effort using what He has given us to fulfill His purposes. Being entrusted with the good news that no matter what our job is, 
no matter what our occupation, where we are at, we do all that we do for His glory. To win as many people to Christ as possible. So does that mean that we're to go witnessing every moment of our lives to every single person we encounter with the Gospel? That we go out there and we just start doing that? If the Lord's calling you to that, do it. Maybe for some. But I think we have to be careful about masking. That we don't mask our relationship with Jesus with our spiritual activity. Just as we are not to mask our relationship with Jesus with just being lazy in our spiritual activity. See, conversion is a work of God. And we are to put effort into spiritual works. But let's not forget that it is indeed spiritual and we need to be led by the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus appointed the twelve, what does Mark tell us in Mark chapter 3, verse 14? And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him. And so I think there are some who are busy being Christian activists, whatever that may be. There's a huge movement for Christians to be against social injustices. So we become these Christian activists. But don't forget to be with Jesus as you're doing those things. It's pointless without Jesus. You might as well join a civic organization or a humanitarian or philanthropic organization. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. We need to be with Jesus. And I also think there are more who are not sharing the Gospel at all who are masking it with the excuse of being with Jesus. Oh, I, you know, I, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, I'm going to do all this thing. But you're not doing anything. Everything's inside. Everything's just self-absorbed and it's selfish. We're to do both. We're to be with Jesus and we're to go about His business sharing the Gospel. We're to do both. Evangelism and discipleship, they go in hand in hand. We are wicked servants not putting our minds to use when we don't evangelize. And we need to be careful not to get so self-absorbed with discipleship that we forget to minister to the lost. And there may be some who are just busy doing evangelism, who are forgetting to be with Jesus. Or you're busy doing Christian activism, forgetting to be with Jesus. And that's not a good place to be either. What we do as servants of Jesus is to be relationship-oriented. Not task-oriented. Relationship-oriented. What we must not do is supersede what we do for whom we serve. We have to remember who we serve. And are we serving out of love? Are we serving out of obligation? Is what you do in the name of Jesus giving you joy? Or is it draining you? Is your service rewarding? May we remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yet so many times in church, how many times is that? Like my yoke is difficult and my burden is heavy, right? And so what is it like? And so this is a question that my wife asked me when I came back because there are some things that I really, really dislike about ministry. I'm not going to share that with you though. And she said, so do you miss those things? I was like, absolutely not. I hate those things. 
And then so she asked me, well, what about studying the Bible and preaching and teaching? Did you miss that? I did. I miss that. This I find rewarding. This I do for free. Not to tell you elders not to pay me. But this I would do. Right? I like doing this. And there's some other things that, oh man, what a drain. I'm, can we cancel that? May we not forget our relationship, our communion to God while we serve Him. We are in Jesus Christ. And from that, we serve for Jesus Christ. May we live a meaningful life where upon His return, He says to us, well done, good servant. Let's pray. Lord, so challenging are Your words. Father, forgive us of our laziness, of our slothfulness, of not putting our minds to use. Father, I ask that You would give us a boldness to go about Your business so that upon Your return, You may tell each one of us, well done, good servant. I pray, Lord, for those who are in rebellion. I pray for those who are wicked. Lord, change their heart just as you did for Zacchaeus. In Jesus' name, amen.